Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast, the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. This month, we're going into sequel territory and taking a look back at the 2009 action extravaganza, Universal Soldier Regeneration. In this sequel to the 1992 classic, Jean-Claude Van Damme returns as Luke Devereaux, a former Universal Soldier in rehabilitation who was sent back into action when a rogue militia kidnaps the Russian Prime Minister's kids and threaten to blow up a nuclear reactor at Chernobyl. Yet in addition to squaring off against the newest upgraded version of the Universal Soldier, Devereaux discovers that his mortal enemy, Andrew Scott, is back along for the ride, and he has a score to settle. blow up Chernobyl has armed themselves with the next generation Universal Soldier you're very good today the mission is simple gentlemen we'll be fighting against the perfect soldier the battle we're going in impossible complete evac pull them out our only hope is to start him up again. I'm going back. I'm going to fight. But standing in his way, not one, but two. I've been over this all before. This time, Andre the Pitbull Arlovsky and Dolph Lundgren again take on Jean-Claude Van Damme in the final showdown. Universal Soldier Regeneration. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and joining me today is David Ullman from his podcast, Long Walk for a Short Drink. David, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, and this is this is pretty cool. I mean, because, you know, I'll just kind of let the listeners know how this uh, how this came about. But basically, you reached out to me and told me a little bit about your show. And I mean, and I, I went back through and I looked at your show and everything. I, I think it's fair to say that you are a huge fan of Jean-Claude Van Damme, which makes this episode and this uh, this this choice of a film for us to discuss, I'm um, all the more apt and perfect for you. Uh, yeah, I'm a huge Jean-Claude Van Damme fan since I was a kid. And uh, so <laughs> I can speak, you know, in this kind of rivalry, uh, the uh, the characters, I, I may side a little more JC as, you know, my friend, as he's my friend, I call him as his friends do JC, but uh, <laughs> I have actually become pretty fond of, of Dolphin uh, in looking at this film and all the kind of behind the scenes stuff. Uh, I have a whole new fondness for him as well. Well, I mean, and I, I went back through and I listened to the episode of uh, your podcast where you professed your love of uh, of Jean-Claude Van Damme, so much so that if if I'm correct in this, 
you have assembled a binder, is that correct, of various <laughs> clippings and whatnot celebrating your love of Van Damme, is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah, I have it nearby. I wasn't sure if there was a video component I would show it to you, but uh, yeah, I mean, to be fair, I, I, yes, as you can hear on my show, the uh, the binder was assembled as an adult, but most of the clippings were kept as as like a preteen. <laughs> I'm a very organized guy, so uh, but it's a it's a pretty uh, humorous, you know, two two inch binder full of Jean Claude Van Damme clippings that for years, whenever a new person would be introduced into our little circle, my wife would march out this notebook and be like, "Here's what you're dealing with. This guy's got a Van Damme binder he assembled himself." So that is who you're dealing with, folks. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, do do you still add to this binder? No, I, I you know, I don't. Uh, I mean, so much of it early, uh, you know, was like Inside Karate magazine and stuff like that. So I don't, I don't buy those anymore. Um, but uh, occasionally, if I you know happen to print something out in the last few years, there you know been stuff for the podcast. Uh, but generally, no, I don't actually actively add to it. But I do have you know digital folder for jc stuff <laughs> that i'll i'll rip the videos off youtube or something like that and and i'll tuck them in there or i'll download podcasts uh, you know that i that i like that talk about his films and save them archive them and years among them that's how i that's how i discovered your podcast actually was listening to the universal soldier uh episode and then i oh, listened cool. to the show down little tokyo episodes so i was kind of cherry picking ones that or about movies that I liked. And, uh, but so I guess in some ways I add to the binder, it's just not the physical binder anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's an excellent segue because, you know, and actually, first of all, I, sh I, I've really been looking forward to this, uh, to this conversation because I mean, <laughs> I loved universal soldier regeneration when I first saw it back in 2009, watching it again, this is at least the fifth or sixth time I've seen it. I want to say I loved it even more. So this go round. So I've really been looking forward to this, uh, conversation before we dive into the film tell us a little bit about your podcast long walk for a short drink you and your co-host have a great rapport if you could please tell us a little bit about it what is your approach and uh what can listeners expect from uh this this fun show sure yeah thanks for asking the um yeah long walk for a short drink or lwsd as we sometimes call it um, we started recording my buddy Palver and i in 2016 i guess and we did it pretty steadily for the last four years. And then just this summer, we kind of hit a, hit a wall with all the sort of heaviness that was coming down. And I'm not sure when we'll resume recording. Um, but I, I hope that we will sometime, but regardless, there are 85 episodes, you know, averaging about, you know, two and a half to three hours in length of just, um, you know, it's just a couple of guys who, like longtime friends, 20 plus years who live in different States and, um, kind of, kept in touch like now we're all keeping in touch through like these video calls you know zoom and whatnot but this was kind of he and i doing just that and run, running a microphone on each side and recording it and kind of contextualizing things such that if somebody heard it someday and we did that for the first maybe eight episodes i guess and then started to uh release them and then there was uh, quite a period where we were live streaming and um it's a lot of like nerd pop culture nerd stuff for guys like in their you know especially like white dudes who grew up in <laughs> northeast Ohio. it's a really narrow <laughs> audience <laughs> but uh yeah we talk about like kind of action movies or various things that we are um interested in stephen king is a common uh interest of ours and so we would talk about his movies but or books sorry and movies thereof and whatnot 
and but a lot of it is just he and I trying to keep up our relationship and uh we would jokingly call it dude therapy a lot of times because we'd kind of get into things that seemed like just you know long therapy sessions with booze <laughs> involved and uh I don't know. It's been a real. It's been a really nice thing. So I'm. I'm hoping we'll get back to it sometime. But uh, like as I said, there's there's tons and tons of episodes for anyone who might be interested to check it out. It's on all you know wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for a long walk, short drink. Well, it's funny that you mentioned uh, booze involved because in some of the previous episodes, I we always have a a beverage accompanying many of the films. This one, unfortunately, I'm uh, I'm going sober this evening for for this one because uh i i wanted to be extremely clear and discussing this one because i think this one is is a real gem and deserves nice. such a close analysis and uh and and look but you know i'm curious okay so jean-claude van damme obviously you're a huge fan of uh of his work i have to ask dolph lundgren uh how has this uh how has the big swede as i like to call him how has he ranked for you compared to all of the other action guys Oh boy, that's a caught me off guard a little bit. Um, I'm definitely fond of 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 the big Swede. Um, I'm not very good at ranking things in general uh, of any sort, <laughs> particularly if they're things I like. I suppose. Um, I don't know, but like, I will say that like, so people. I've always been annoyed that like JC is considered like second tier of those kind of action guys. Like I, I always didn't like that to begin with. It's not that I don't like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone or whatever, but I don't know. So I never liked that idea of this like second class citizenship for Van Damme. And I, I've heard that same thing applied to Dolph at times. And I, I don't like that either. You know, I think he's, I think he's, uh, he's incredible. And, and like, um, in doing some of the research for, for today's conversation, I watched the, that, uh, video he did interview with, uh, Scott Atkins on YouTube. You're welcome, by the way. Yeah, thank you so much for sending that. I really, uh, like, a few years ago, I'd seen um, Dolph's uh, TED Talk. The I think it's on healing and forgiveness. Um, I'm guessing you've seen that. Have you seen? Oh, his, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A couple so times, I, of course. actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so I, I had a new appreciation for him seeing that. And, um, yeah, and so I don't know. I, I, you'll kind of gather, I think, through this conversation more and more that for me, a lot of it has to do with a kind of a general gut feeling and whether or not I just like someone. <laughs> like, that's the thing with Van Damme. It's just I just like him. So I'm not saying all his movies are amazing, but I like him. And so I like the films that he does, if only to sort of see him do his thing. And I think Dolph's one of those guys, definitely, that has this presence about him that's undeniable. And uh, it's a little peculiar <laughs> at times. His he's like a little odd, you know. But uh, but like, I don't think he's got a great sense of humor about himself, and seems to be a really just good dude. And that goes a long way for me. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how to rank him exactly, but um, I mean, I'll I would say I like. I don't know. I can't do it. <laughs> I'm just shutting down. I'm just like, do I like him more than so and so? I don't know. I like him quite a bit. In fact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll say that. Well, you know, it, it's funny with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, because if you look at him, I mean, it, it's very clear when you when you look at Jean-Claude Van Damme, especially throughout the 90s, not, not so much nowadays, I would say, and I was going to be getting to this, my theory and my analysis on Jean-Claude Van Damme nowadays, I think now he's essentially retired. I mean, if you look at his choices in films and kind of how invested he is, I, I kind of look at him as being... Um, 
almost semi-retired. But if you look at him throughout the 90s at the at the peak or at the height of his career, you can see, I mean, it's very clear that he was a star. I mean, he had everything about him. I mean, he had the charisma when he was on screen. You watch these old interviews with him when he was on like Arsenio Hall, and he was just a charming, you know, funny guy. And the fact that, I mean, he was a badass and could do martial arts, and which is kind of funny because if you look at if you look at the martial arts that he was doing in the '90s, and you look at it nowadays, it's kind of like, mm, is that really that great? <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I think he's more <laughs> like posing, <laughs> posing for the camera. Um, yeah, but oh, no, totally. I, I agree with you. I mean, if you look at him, I mean, you know, I, I would I would I would say Time Cop was about probably the height of his career. But God, he was he was a charming, you know, um, amazing actor. So it's very clear how and why he became a star yeah that's very yeah i appreciate you saying that about my pal jc <laughs> i i think for me that 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 part is even more like the kind of charm of it all is is super important and why like and i don't know made me think of this movie but uh maybe something about regeneration here too but like a friend of mine like so my friend on the podcast like he's a big fan of the the judge dread remake and kept trying to sort of sell me that i should watch that and another, uh, we have various other friends of ours come on the show sometimes, and um, two of the guys really loved it. So I, I took a chance on it one night. I'm like, oh, what the hell? Because I usually have a very bizarre, like I'll, it's not uncommon for me to like start with some, the beginning of someone's career and then just watch their movies or listen to their music or whatever it is for like months on end. So I generally have some sort of weird regimen I'm on, but I felt, all right, we'll try this Judge Dredd. And I couldn't make it through it. Like I, I could not, I could see like why they thought it was like super cool because like the action was well done. But I was just like I didn't care about anyone, and and I was like I need that helmet to come off. I need to see like some like doe-eyed Belgian, I guess, blinking at me slowly, <laughs> kind of mm -hmm. you know making me care about the human being behind the action. And so I think uh, that's one of the big things I really, um, uh, I guess, I'm into about Van Damme is this sort of vulnerability behind the tough guyness. And, um, I think that's one of the things that's really drawn me or like really endeared, uh, Lundgren to me and looking into him more and more. He just seems like, a, yeah, it seems like a big softy under it all, but he, he's like enormous, you know, <laughs> damn, it's like kind of a little guy. Uh, that's one thing. Like I've spent some time with Dolph. I'm just like, what did you call him? The big Swede. I mean, that's such yes, an understatement. Yes. I, I, I know uh, like on a Dolph Lundgren podcast, I must sound like ridiculous, but it's just shocking to me his stature <laughs> um, yeah you have the muscles from brussels versus the big swede i mean it yeah. is amazing pairing um you know and, and and again before we before we really dive into this film i think it's important that we take a look at the universal soldier franchise and kind of briefly discuss kind of where it had been prior to this film being uh, made because I, I don't know about you but i think the universal soldier franchise has almost had a fascinating evolution over the years. So I guess I'll go to you first. I'm assuming you've seen the original Universal Soldier film, and then did you see the uh, the sequels that followed? I saw, yeah, I saw the, the original. In fact, I, I'm holding my uh, novelization thereof. I was going to show you, because I, I don't know why I thought this would be a video call. But uh, yeah, so like I, I read, I, I was big fan of that movie, uh, and still am. Um, and I saw... What was the, the return? I guess the sequel that came out in 1999. I think that was probably Van Damme's last theatrical film for quite a while, and it was also the first film of his though that I didn't see in a theater and saw on video. And I think I was just kind of 
over the initial enthrallment. You know, I think I discovered him in, I would say, like, 89. And so for a good, like, 10 years, I was all about the Van Damage. <laughs> and, uh, but by 1999, I was 18 and just kind of a little less interested. And that movie is, you know, when I will go back through his catalog, I... I'm a little too crazy to completely skip things, but I think hard. I mean, I might have stopped short of it this last time. <laughs> so I'm just not into that picture. And it makes no, like, it has no, nothing to do with the original, <laughs> you know? Uh, and then, yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm sure I, I'm interested to hear you kind of lay out the others because I, I've heard this story about the various sequels that there are, but I can never quite track it. It seems so confusing, even just like how many there are and where they came from and, what they're about and yeah it's it's had a i mean this is one series that kind of like it's uh it's titular characters just refuses to die and they you know and and part of the pun please excuse me i mean but this is a series that just keeps getting regenerated which i think is pretty <laughs> cool and and so if if you go back i mean i'm going to slightly repeat myself a bit but the original universal soldier film that came out in 1992 I have a real soft spot for. I mean, the, I have a real nostalgia for us. Um, I, I'll just go ahead and say it. The original Universal Soldier movie, 1992, is probably hands down my favorite film of all time. And there's a variety of reasons, you know, why. Um, I, of course, I, I have a bit of a, uh, a, like I said, a nostalgic attachment to it because it's kind of funny. I was a huge Dolph Lundgren fan as a little kid because he starred as He-Man. Okay. And so naturally, because he's playing my cartoon hero as a little kid in Masters of the Universe, I wanted to, you know, see what else he was doing. And so it's funny because I had no idea that, you know, I knew he had this movie coming out with, uh, with Jean-Claude Van Damme back in 1992, but I had no idea that he was going to be the bad guy in, in that one. And so my, it's funny because my parents took me to see it in the theater. So here I was, this little 10 year old kid. And they took me to see the original Universal Soldier in the theaters. And that was the very first rated R movie that I ever saw. And so, <laughs> I mean, if, if you can think about it, I mean, nowadays kids can, I mean, kids can see pretty much whatever they want. There, There's ratings and there's age restrictions and whatnot. But I mean, kids have access and they can see anything. I mean, from the comforts of their phone, you know, for crying out loud. But back yeah. in the summer of, back in the summer of 1992, Going into a movie theater, a rated R movie, where I was one of the only little kids, and seeing something that I knew I shouldn't be seeing, but my parents were so cool in taking me to this, was, I, I know this is going to sound cliche, but it was, it was pretty magical. I mean, it was really kind of cool to see it. In hindsight, it's kind of funny because, you know, my hero, Dolph, who had played my other my my other uh cartoon hero uh he-man it's kind of funny that he went from playing he-man who's this ultimate do-gooder to universal soldier where he's playing this completely bigoted psychopath so it's <laughs> a really it's, fun one <laughs> yeah <laughs> really if so, that can be said you know but but what's wild about it is and i you know i'm gonna go back to this because i and i always will go back to this the one thing that um there was many things that i love about the original but one of the things is the fact that I would say this is one of the first and only films of the time to really capitalize on the gimmick of pairing two action stars in their prime, in their prime against one another. I mean, if, if you think about it, um, Robert De Niro and uh, Al Pacino, they did the film Heat. Um, yeah, that came a couple out years like later. 90, yeah. 
that came out a couple years later. And then, of course, uh, Stallone and uh, Schwarzenegger, they tried their hand at this when, of course, obviously there's the Expendables, but then they did Escape Plan. But those films came, you know, so much later when those guys are, you know, significantly older. But back in the early 90s, I mean, this was a big budget summer release, 1992, to take two guys within the action genre, okay, in their prime and pit them together was pretty cool. I mean, that was it. That was just a really, I mean, you could say it's a gimmick, but man, was that a cool gimmick. This is going to sound like a weird comparison, <laughs> but there are things uh, about this, this, you know, movie that, you know, in uh, regeneration that <laughs> you think of them. But when I be like, one of the things I was really into just before, cause I like, I got into the Van Damme films right around that age, like 10, 10 as well. And so just before that, like one of the things I liked most was the universal monsters, like Frankenstein, the Wolfman, Dracula, all of that. And for me, like that was a little bit like, you know, comic books are all the, it's still like the, the biggest, you know, intellectual property and running movies and all that stuff. But like that whole continuity of like building off stories and, and um, kind of world building, if you will, where all the things are interconnected. Um, my first exposure to that was all these universal films. And so you would have like the Frankenstein and then it'd be followed by the bride of Frankenstein. And uh, at that time, they're just kind of doing plays off the name to kind of work the name in until you get to Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And that was the first time they started like having these monsters, like more than one monster per movie. And then that started a whole thing where they just kept like throwing more and more in. And there are, <laughs> for some reason, I think it's the stature. By the time Van Damme and, and Dolph are fighting in this film at the end and throwing each other around to such an extent, I one of my notes that I wrote down is like, this looks like the end of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Because the Wolfman's like little, like Jim Van Damme. And then Dolph's got this like, you know, towering presence, like uh, like the Frankenstein monster. And so th that's what it reminded me of. And that was kind of like back then in the in the 40s when they started doing that was to like, you know, if what's better than one monster, two monsters. And so oddly enough, I think, uh, I don't know if there's any, you know, execs at that time being like, you know, what's better than one action star, two action stars, but, uh, it worked out and then kept, yeah. Then, then you get down the line to things like the expendables and it's like kind of a cliche of its own now, but it's, it's still always fun. I mean, that it's like, these guys are such rarefied beings, you know, in terms of their, yeah their screen presence and all of that kind of to see them in the same place. Like the, the, the chemistry is, it's really exciting. And I think it's one of the, it's like, it's really electric in this movie because of the, how little they're in it that all of a sudden when they come on screen it made me appreciate them all the more. I was like, Oh, this is what you need. Like for, you know, 90 minutes, not just 40 of them because like, but it was interesting. Cause like a little went a long way. Well, and it's funny that you said, uh, yeah, yeah, putting all of these, uh, monsters or action stars because, you know, th there's a, there's a delicate balance because you could go, uh, down Expendables 3 territory where you have 15, 16 action stars thrown in there. And then it's like, okay, wait a minute here. We, <laughs> I need, I need a bit of a break. You know, more isn't necessarily better, I will say. So. <laughs> Yeah, and you can't, it's like DC did such a shitty job because, like, they're just trying to jump. They don't, like, earn the big ensemble cast. You know, they're just, they were trying to dive into it right from the get go. And it, that doesn't work so well. You got to kind of build towards those things. 
And yeah, I, yeah. I remember you saying that it was when I first heard that episode, and I had never really thought about it like that. It being this move, that '92 film being kind of breaking that sort of ground. Um, yeah, but yeah, that was that was a new insight, and I, I you've made me see that, which is one of my favorite films too, in a, in a whole whole new light uh, as well. Well, and so after the success of Universal Soldier, I mean, it's not like um, when the original came out, it was a huge, massive, big blockbuster success, but it was a modest hit. I mean, it, what's funny is I feel like for Jean-Claude Van Damme, the film, I, I, I'm going to repeat myself again, but the film had the intended effect because it got Jean-Claude onto bigger, more expensive properties. I mean, he essentially for a period became the go-to guy for uh, for Universal Pictures, but what followed there were uh, two made-for-television sequels starring Matt Pataglia, Jeff Wincott, uh, Burt Reynolds, Gary Busey. <laughs> these, were, uh, these were Canadian. They were made in Canada, and they were used um, as a launch pad for a potential series. Thankfully, that never happened, and I'm going to be honest, the less said about those films, the better. Um, have, you ever and- <laughs> se- have you ever seen them? I've never seen them. Oh, they're terrible. They're terrible. I, I kid you not. I can't remember if it's the the first one or the second one. They made two of them. I want to say it was the second one. But um, they they propose that Bill Clinton was, in fact, a universal soldier in hiding. What? So there you that, go. That's all I'll say about that. I can't begin to make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Huh. So, and what followed there was uh, Universal Soldier The Return. I mean, you already kind of talked about this. Yeah, and what's funny about Universal Soldier The Return, that came out in 1999. Um, Not only a lot of, some interesting things about that one, because it was Jean-Claude's very first sequel, and it was also his last theatrically released movie for quite a while, actually. And what's also kind of sad about it, I mean, is you can tell that, Jean-Claude did that film as kind of a last-ditch effort to get back on top because his career had been waning significantly with his film choices before. I I will say about Universal Soldier The Return, it's funny because I remember seeing it in the theater in high school, and I was was pretty psyched. I was pretty pumped because I became a fan of Van Damme thanks to the original Universal Soldier movie. I went went into the original because I was a Dolph fan, but it, it made me a Van Damme fan as well. And so you got to think I was 16, 17 years old or so when this came out in theaters. And so a new Van Damme movie starring in a sequel to my all time favorite movie. I mean, I saw this opening night, David. I'm not kidding you. I was so psyched. And I remember walking out of the theater so pissed off. I mean, the film just it just sucked. First of all, it looks cheap. I mean, it just looks so cheap. And there are so many little plot holes and things that are almost insulting. If you are a fan of the original Universal Soldier movie, okay, and especially if you're a fan of the one that we're going to talk about today, there are so many things about it that just don't make any sense. Number one, Luke Devereaux now has a daughter. Only the name of the mother is never mentioned, so it's never made (laughs) clear if it's Veronica Roberts or not. We'll just get that out of the way. Fine. But I think the biggest insult to me with uh, with the sequel, the 1999 Return sequel, is... Luke Devereaux, we're to believe he's suddenly now working for the organization that made him a walking, talking, killing machine zombie. No way. I'm sorry. No way. (laughs) So we can just say right now, okay, this uh, this sequel came uh, 16 years later after the original. And I don't think anyone was anticipating another Universal Soldier film. I mean, this film came as a complete surprise. 
and it is rightfully so a direct sequel to the original, and it completely disregards the events and the characters from both uh, the television sequels, obviously, as well as um, the Universal Soldier's Return, the one that came out in 1999. This obviously was a direct-to-video film, but uh, yeah, I don't think anybody, it was on anyone's radar. I don't think anyone was expecting it, and uh, golly, I don't think anyone was anticipating it to... I mean, I keep raving about it, and I, I, I should probably get your opinion first, but in my opinion, I was not anticipating this film to look and be as good as it was. You had never seen it before, so, I mean, was it a surprise to you? Did you enjoy it? Well, it I turned out I had seen the first, like, so many minutes back when it came out to home video, so I, it, that kind of came back to me. I didn't love it. I feel bad about. Oh, you didn't? No. I, oh man. Okay. I, but but that's, <laughs> that's okay. okay. I mean, I, I I can still have a good talk about it. I so the I don't know. It's weird. Like you were talking earlier about the nostalgia component and all this, and I think you know, depending on you know, where you're coming from, folks sometimes talk about that like it's a bad thing. For me, it's it. There is no bad thing. There's no bad movies. It's just like whether or not you like them or not. I mean, I literally like make movies for a living. I mean, not movies that do this, but like I make, I'm a filmmaker by trade and I've done it my whole life and uh, I'm a creative person in a lot of different avenues. And for me, it's just like, I'm very interested in what people are trying to do. And I think it's sort of interesting as to how that stacks up with what I experience. But I don't, I rarely have this thing of like, this is a bad movie. This is not this, that. This movie just, I think I didn't like it very much because it just, it's so cold. You know, I didn't, like I said about Judge Dredd, I just didn't care about anybody. And um, yeah, that was frustrating to me. Uh, And so in some ways I enjoyed like the behind the scenes of it, (laughs) the little 20 minute thing on the DVD. And the more I learned about it and kind of what they were going for, I was able to, um, to appreciate a lot more things about it and how well done it was. But on that just kind of gut level emotional um, reaction, it didn't, uh, I was just like, oh, this is not, I don't know what I wanted, but it wasn't this. <laughs> and I think a good well, example you know, of it, of why I, I feel that way about it is actually a little bit of a residue from when I did first encounter it, which was 2010, probably I like bought it like $5 at a, I just peeled the label off my DVD this evening from like a grocery store. I'm like, oh, this is a Van Damme movie I haven't seen. And by that point, by 2010, I was, you know, most of what I was doing was as a solo musician. I was definitely not watching Van Damme movies on the regular. I was kind of just on this different track. And so I put it in hoping for that kind of like warm, you know, nostalgic feeling I get watching his films. And the first time you see him after like all this kind of really dark, serious looking like blue hued stuff with the museum heist and stuff like he's in this diner and <laughs> beats a man to death like just savagely it was like terrifying the the brutality of that and i remember like i just shut it off i was just like this is not what i need and i never finished it <laughs> i forgot all about it and uh so i think that it doesn't it's not like the van damme i want to see or the action movies that i really like appreciate and i think part of it is that I was associating with the vibe and the charm of that initial one. So, so I'm, I'm interested to talk more about it too, to kind of help deepen my appreciation uh, for it, but it just kind of wasn't my cup of tea, I guess. (laughs) Well, you know, I will, I will say, I mean, first of all, I agree with what you said uh, wholeheartedly 
regarding the overall tone with it. Because, yeah, this is it is a very cold, harsh, oppressive movie, especially compared to the first. Now, I will say um, I, I still enjoy the first one better than this one. I still like the first one more because I feel like the first one still has some fun about it. There are still moments within it that still have some humor. And I think that's not just indicative of um, of Jean-Claude's, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme's films around the 90s, but I think that's all action movies around the 90s. Yeah, all action movies yeah. around the 90s, you know, they could be hard-hitting and violent and everything, but they could also balance the humor within them much better than they do nowadays. As opposed to this one, there is no humor in this one whatsoever. There, I mean, this is just, it's its brutal. I mean, it, it, this is a brutal movie. And like you said, it's very, very cold, both literally and figuratively, which we're, which we're going to be getting into. To be honest, I don't know, you know, if you look at it nowadays, I don't know if they could pull off a sequel to the original and still kind of balance the humor as well as the action nowadays that they could back then they could try but i don't know if it would come off as uh if they would be as successful in doing that you know what i mean yeah i think they would it would you're right the 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 landscape is so different now that i think it would have to be a a bit of a throwback intentionally and have that be part of like almost a kitschy thing um yeah 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 it's yeah, it's interesting. Like the even the the director talked about it as uh, just kind of taking these old characters, but like putting them in a new and more modern context. And I think in that respect, yeah, that's kind of exactly what it is. It's just I, I I miss the the charm and the. I mean, I don't know. There's there's some weird inconsistencies for me. I'm sure we'll probably get to like you know as we kind of move through it. But it's it's unusual for me, honestly, to not look like a movie. <laughs> It feels terrible. It's just because I want to. That's the thing. It's like I want to like movies uh, the, that I'm, you know, that's I'm I'm not, I'm not really big on like having a critical eye for its own sake or, you know, to tell people like, well, this isn't good because of that. I, I generally want to want to find the good. And I think what was really lacking in this for me is not that it wasn't good. It's just that it it didn't engage me emotionally very much when it did. It was it was when Dolph kind of really c- came to life. And that's what I mean. Like I was so surprised by how into that I was, how into him I was. I was, I could care less about Van Damme in this movie, to be honest with you. Even by the end, I was just like, that didn't even seem like Luke Devereaux to me. I just like, I wasn't into it, but I was into Dolph. So I think that's kind of appropriate <laughs> for the podcast we're on. Cause I, I would agree. He stole the show in the first one. He had the really showy role, but I wasn't, that was more an intellectual point for me. For me, like I could acknowledge that. I'm not saying as a teenager I was super intellectual about it. For me, though, it was all about Van Damme and uh, Ali Walker. <laughs> Ali Walker stole the show for me as a, as a yeah. teenager. I was so enamored of her, um, her character and demeanor. But uh, yeah, I would say even more so for me. I know it's not as showy. I know he wasn't doing kind of the funny stuff, but Dolph stood head and shoulders, like literally and figuratively, for me above like everyone else involved in this picture. Well, I think, you know, I don't think it's so much of a secret, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's it, it's pretty much out there. I don't think Van Damme really wanted to do this movie um, from uh. what I could gather <laughs> in, in a lot of my research. He was uh, he was contra- he was contractually obligated to do um, to do some movie from the same producers that was going to be set in the world of mixed martial arts. And it was oh. going to be called the smash. Yeah, and it was going to be called the smashing machine. Oh, and, yeah, actually, the. Oh, that's very interesting you say that because you, do you know that that was the documentary that uh, yeah. the director made? 
You think it was that, that was his, I don't know if it was related. I don't know what was going on, but it's almost too much of a coincidence. The fact that the director of this one, his first, his first real feature length film was a documentary called the smashing machine. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if, uh, if the project that Van Damme was attached to was going to be like a, um, a biopic type thing. I mean, I don't know, but I see that. what happened, what happened, I guess was as they got closer to production, I guess Van Damme backed out or, you know, he, he wasn't as invested or interested in it. And so since the producers also happen to have the rights to the universal soldier franchise, it sounds like they basically said, okay, well, you know what, let's do a universal soldier three uh, or universal soldier regeneration or else he was going to be threatened with a lawsuit, or I think that was the fear. And so Van Damme basically begrudgingly signed on for this film, hence why you really don't see him a heck of a lot. Um, I I think it comes down to he was on set for maybe 20 days, if that even. I mean, it was Mm. was very, very short. And they were able to get uh, Dolph Lundgren. He was in between filming a couple movies himself, and they were able to get him. And they only got him for five days. So that yeah. explains why ostensibly the leads in the film are actually in the film, you know, so little. But I will say, I mean, we, you mentioned the director. So let's let's just talk about him. While this is, I mean, hopefully you notice this as well and can appreciate it. But while this is a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie or a Dolph Lundgren movie, I would say that John Hyams, the director John Hyams, he is the real star of this movie. I mean, this this movie is... It's very clear that this is a, um, hey, look at me. Look at what I can do. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm a director. Look at my style. Because man, oh, man. For, we can say John Hyams, he's the son of legendary director Peter Hyams, who coincidentally also worked with Jean-Claude Van Damme a few times prior. He did Time Cop. He did Sudden Death, which I would say are some of Jean-Claude's best films. I think they're easily the most accessible and universal among his entire filmography. And then he later did a film with uh, Jean-Claude so many years later called enemies closer so on this particular film on regeneration peter hyams actually took a back seat to his own son so you have his son john hyams handling the directing duties and then P- uh, peter hyams is taking a back seat and he's uh handling directing of photography duties so i mean and th- there's a lot of things we could say about john hyams and what he brought to this franchise but i like i said i'll say it now he is the real star of this movie he's the guy who um, I think we should really be taking note of. Yeah, his his yeah his really a showcase for him. I think more than anything. Yeah, yeah. I I, I was really I really got sucked into his director commentary on the DVD with Dolph. It was, I really enjoyed listening to that. And as they talked about like kind of what they were going for with these cool colors and and kind of um, you know even the things that I was affected by and disturbed by like the the brutality it was like that was very intentional and all this. And so I, I was um. Yeah, I, I, this I I would say this did make me a, a John Hyams fan. <laughs> so mission accomplished in that sense. Well, and I'm I'm really it's really kind of unfortunate that he. I mean, the, the guy's working. I mean, the guy he actually has a new one that's actually out right now. That's um on one of those uh high profile on demand releases called Alone, I believe. So I mean, he's and he's worked and he's done a lot of stuff. But I think he's a director who we should really uh, keep an eye on. I mean, not only has he done action centric stuff, but he's, he also did a um, dramedy called uh, all square, which is really kind of cool. I don't know if you've seen that one or not, but um, that one, it's kind of like a dark bad news bears is the way I kind of look at it. But, um, and it's basically about a town that is um, placing bets on little league baseball games. 
So, oh, I mean, wow. it's wild to think that, that John Hyams, the guy who did this friggin' brutal movie. I'm intrigued um, by that. I like that idea. You know, there's quite a few things uh, that we can uh, that we can take a look at that I think need to be looked at regarding uh, what John Hyams brought to this particular film. I mean, first of all, I mean, we'll just say it right now. I mean, you said it. It's brutal. Okay. And clearly John Hyams is a fan of the world of mixed martial arts. And he wanted this same style of fighting to be present in this one. And so what he did is he cast two mixed martial artist fighters in roles. Okay, he cast uh, Andre the Pitbull Arlovsky. Love that name. He yeah. cast him as his main villain. And then he also cast Mike Pyle to play one of the American soldiers who is uh, sent in to fight. And I think what this does, when you cast two like real actual tough guys, two actual real fighters in your film, what this is doing is this is uh, lending a certain sense of uh, credibility and realism to all of the action because what you get, I mean, obviously the fight choreographer deserves a lot of credit here as well, but whereas in the first film, uh, the, the fights were somewhat on the level of a comic book, you know, because they're, you know, throwing them across the room and everything like that. I mean, they almost feel kind of superhuman in a lot of ways in this film. I mean, these fights are real. They are brutal. I mean, I feel like every punch that is landed is felt. And it absolutely hurts. I mean, th there's one move that is used in this film uh, quite a bit. Uh, it's a mixed martial arts uh, technique, I guess, called ground and pound. Yeah, basically... that's the really upsetting thing to me. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, in the ground and pound, for anyone listening who doesn't know, that's where you throw your opponent on the ground and you're on top of him and you just beat him into oblivion. Uh, my God, Arlovsky's character, the, the NGU, we'll call him the next generation soldier. He loves to annihilate his adversaries with, with this particular maneuver. I think, what does he do it, like, five times in this film to such a disturbing level? I mean, this film, golly, it is, I, I can't say that enough, David. This is brutal. Like, it is just on another level of violence. Yeah, and it's it's weird that that's the thing, too, with the ground and pound that upset me the most. Uh, so without... I apologize. I, you know, my podcast called Long Walk Short Drink for a reason. I kind of talk in circles and too much. But um, when I was a kid and like getting into Van Damme and stuff, I, I was making like little action movies with my buddy doing my own Van Damme moves. You know, I'd copy the choreography and figure out how to like stage it so it'll look cool. I could, at the time, I could jump up and do the helicopter kick and we'd like run it in slow mo or in our VCR, <laughs> just like silly stuff like that. But I remember like I did, uh, a scene where we had some bag, like we used to play like both parts, my buddy and I. And so it made no sense to anyone watching because you couldn't even track which character was which. But I had this thing where I wanted, like I thought that the character should unleash this kind of fury and like punch and punch at the camera just repeatedly. And we got like the catch up and we tried to get it so that someone like kind of come off on the, on his, from his fist to the lens. And the whole idea was like to kind of convey the sense of like rage like and um and i did that again that's too long a story to mention but uh so i well i'll just say it <laughs> we don't have to talk about it i remade the crow it took like four years did it <laughs> the the film i redid the comic book on vhs and it's actually a little bit of a weird cult thing but that book ends with like this panel of like the last bad guy and the crow sort of character with a, a clawed hammer, like, and you know that he's going to go after him with that hammer. It's like the last person who he's got to get vengeance on. And it just goes to a black panel. 
to kind of the reader can fill in their fill this in in their mind. And for me at the time, I was like, no way, man, we got to see some of this rage come out as he like repeatedly bludgeons it with a hammer. So it's weird that I'm the guy saying like, I don't want to see that. And so I don't know if it's just age or, or what, but it's just like, it so put me on edge. You know what I think it is the biggest part of it. And this is going to sound ironic. It's like the fact that they are emotionless about it. Like that it doesn't seem to come from a place of rage. They're doing it. They're, they're barely blinking and they're just like punching the life out of someone. I don't know, man. It gets me. It's a, uh, which maybe I guess that's the idea. It's just not a pleasant. Oh, it's feeling. unsettling. <laughs> yeah. It's unsettling. I mean, and I think what, uh, what John Hyams is also doing is, I mean, look, I, I can't, I can't help but imagine. Okay. When he was uh, tapped to direct this particular film. Okay. He's looking at it and he's saying, okay, I have to direct a sequel to a film 16 years later. Okay. So this is going to have to play to a different audience, especially audiences now with different sensibilities. So what do I do? So I think he looked at the overall conceit and concept. And I, if you really look at it, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that how, how unsettling and how much it upset you, because I will say right now, if this one upset you, the Universal Soldier movie that followed this one, uh, Day of Reckoning, oh, is that... even more so. Really? I mean, oh, it no. is, oh, my goodness. That's yeah. the one that intrigues me all the more because I guess it's kind of surreal, like Lynchian weirdness. <laughs> I was like, yeah, intrigued it is, by that. It, it, it is. Oh, my goodness. But what John Hyams is doing now is he really wants to play up the whole Frankenstein aspect of the story and these characters because – while there is plenty of action, sure, and it is brutal action, as we keep saying, um, Hyams is treating these characters as what they are, uh, reanimated pieces of flesh. And I think mm -hmm. he's really leaning into the into the very horror of this conceit. Whereas in the first one, yeah, they were reanimated pieces of flesh, but th they were kind of almost made more human as the movie went on. Here, I mean, he is just, he is, it's, it's funny how you mentioned... Uh, how at the, at the beginning of the episode, you talked about Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. I yeah. think with this one, he's doing Frankenstein meets another Frankenstein. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he's... yeah, it's interesting you say that. Yeah. And the last thing I will say about Hyams and uh, what he brought with this one is, I mean, golly, you, you mentioned it already regarding the coldness of the film. He has a very clear vision with this one. And you can also tell that he's experienced with cinematography. I mean, I, I have to believe that um, these were all conscious decisions on behalf of John Hyams because I think he wanted this film to be a sequel to the original, but he also wanted the film to possess its own flavor and style. And so if you look at the film and you compare it, like if you put the original Universal Soldier on one plane and then you put the sequel on the other plane, you'll notice it's, it's almost kind of like he wanted to do the exact opposite with both films. For example, hmm. like, because uh, it's in so much stark contrast to the original. If you look at the original, okay, the original Universal Soldier film is set entirely in the hot, sunny desert alongside oh, yeah, Nevada, yeah, Utah. Yeah. Right? Where does this take place? In the cold tundra of Russia, right? <laughs> if you look at the, if you look at the original, um, even the costumes. I mean, I love the costumes in the original Universal Soldier, but if you look at the the gear that the that the soldiers are wearing it reflects and blends in very well with the environment and terrain because in the first universal soldier film, the soldiers all wear this kind of padded desert storm camo gear, browns and yellows, uh, which blends in yeah. with the terrain here. The soldiers, including Luke, 
okay, because they're in this cold tundra Russia, they're wearing blacks, grays, navy blue camo gear, which again blends in with this cold terrain. And like I said, looking at that, I have to I have to believe John Hyams knew exactly what he was doing. He wanted these these two films to almost be polar opposites. Yeah, that's a, such a great observation. I hadn't that hadn't occurred to me. And I think he's also very much aware of the, aware of the fact that this is a direct to video film. And so he's working within the parameters of it being a direct to video film. Because if you look at the first one, obviously the first one is pretty epic in scale. I mean, it covers lots of ground, so there's plenty of chases and action sequences. This one, because I'm assuming it was working obviously on a lower budget, this one all takes place in a single location being the nuclear reactor. But Hyams, he's going to make the most of it and make it look as amazing as it possibly can. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. He, I think they were saying the initial, you know, there had been various scripts and and that the initial plan was to have the kind of like next generation unisols, like an army of them against an army of the uh, kind of the old school. And then uh, that was going to be too expensive. And they found this location. They kind of restructured everything around this, you know, this Chernobyl, um, you know, nuclear reactor factory type thing. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, they really may got their money's worth out of it, <laughs> but it is cool. Cause it's like that, that, the difference, you know, the, the first one, it's all kind of this is being the Universal Soldier program is kind of being unveiled at the Hoover Dam and all this. And it's like kind of shiny and new and they're like out and proud about it. If I, And if I'm remembering correctly, and maybe it was still kind of secret. Do you do you remember? Were they trying to keep it a secret or were they kind of this was like their coming out party? The, the Hoover Dam sequence was like their coming out party. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. But, but they weren't they weren't being entirely truthful with the public that these were reanimated pieces of flesh. Right. The general, (laughs) the the general guy was saying, uh, we're going to keep their names secret. We don't want to, uh, hurt their, the identities of their families and whatnot, you know? Yeah. So it seems so like well-funded and stuff that like the government was proud of and it, all the, but like this movie feels more like kind of an underground, you know, like things are put together with like duct tape, (laughs) you know, it's like, it's a much sort of, uh, yeah, under the radar, you know, purposely because of you know, things have gotten even more nefarious. And then there's like, the, but uh, yeah, it is kind of interesting to think about them as contrast rather than, you know, me being more like, oh, I want it to be more like I remember. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You're really turning me around on this. Well, the, the film, I will say the film starts with a bang. I mean, literally. So we have the Russian prime minister's children. They're kidnapped at an art museum by this rogue militia. The the general Topov is uh is the is our one of our lead villains we'll say he's kidnapped the children and he's taken them to a nuclear reactor at Chernobyl he's wired it with explosives and his demands are that the uh, prime minister release over two hundred uh two hundred political prisoners you know I I will say compared to the first one and I know it's not fair to keep comparing it to the first one but even to this day watching it again on my repeated viewing. I'm still really bummed that the opening does not have a cool title sequence, especially mm. compared to the first one. The first film has just such a bitchin' opening title sequence. And then you have this one and just Universal Soldier Regeneration just appears on screen. Like, I I don't know, <laughs> man. I, I wanted a little more. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just recently re-listening to that episode where you were talking about how they zip up the body bags and how cool it was the way that the titles reveal in that first one. And uh, yeah, you're so right. How about about that one of the i was really like captivated from the beginning like with the staging of things like the first note that i had was just like 
what a cool shot it was to be in the back seat of that bullet in the the car with the bullet ridden um windshield and that's kind of obscuring what you're seeing as they're pulling up to that helicopter um and i, I here in the commentary you hear john himes talk about a lot of that being very intentional like his sort of picking a point of view and kind of staying with it and trying to stay in wide shots where you see things play out and um that is definitely interesting and like compelling because you're trying to it's not just all done through the editing where your, where your mind's putting it together, where you kind of feel a bit more like you're with the characters. It's still, it's still, I, I wish, I still just wish I cared more. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I was always like, you know, this is cool. This is well done. <laughs> yeah. You, the, the, the car chase at the beginning is amazing. And, you know, I think maybe you, know, you mentioned, uh, I haven't listened to the commentary actually in, in a while since I bought the DVD actually, but yeah, it's, it's interesting that you said that the original script was having two, two armies, I guess, going against each other. So you have the old universal soldiers versus the the new universal soldiers. I think what is kind of cool here with this one is they pretty much just make um, everybody going up against one universal soldier. So yeah, yeah. what we find out is uh, that uh, general Topov, in order to assist him in accomplishing his mission, he's aligned himself with Dr. Colin, who's this uh, nebbish, but brilliant uh, scientist from America who worked on the Universal Soldier program. Uh, he made plenty of advancements with it, namely by introducing a, uh, a cloning process with the program. But uh, he has, uh, Topov has hired, or I guess aligned himself, made a partnership with uh, the scientist who has the, uh, the next gen under his command. So pretty much, I mean, it's funny because while General Topov does have all these terrorists at his disposal, Pretty much the one who's uh, leading the show and uh, wrecking all the damage is the next gen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting, too. I, I reminded, like, with the uh, casting the MMA, you know, fighters in, in this kind of new generation, you know, as it were, like, literally, I guess, <laughs> the next gens. It reminds me of, like, how in the in with the time that Dolph and Van Damme were coming up, the, the thing was, like, kickboxers. Like, you put in kickboxers into movies. That was, like... It just seems like kind of an updated version of that, you know, kind of way to bring it into the, you know, the, literally the next generation of things. And it, you got the old school kicker, you know, guys that throwing the kicks and all that with the, with the, with the ground and pound and grapplers of these, uh, these new, like guys who are the, the new generation, the new stars with Arlovsky and stuff. But, uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty cool to have that central villain. Like you, you, they did a great job of like making him the focal point of like, there was no question because towards the end and stuff, you're like, you're not sure who like is, is Fantam even good all this, but you always know that, 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 that NGU is bad news. Well, and the, uh, the army boy, the poor army, they, uh, they, they, they unfortunately learn the hard way, right. That, uh, they are no match for the NGU because it's, it's funny because they send in four first generation universal soldiers. They send them into, uh, uh, to take out uh, Andre Arlovsky, and Andre Arlovsky just lays waste to them. I mean, not only does he take them all out single handedly, but of course he destroys them by uh, ground and pound. That's his. That's his <laughs> thing. So yeah. there needs to be an acronym for that, like destroy by ground and pound for like his thing. I don't know what it would and be. So, well, and it's funny because what the army decides this is. I mean, it takes. I, I didn't clock it, but it's about a good what. 20 minutes into the film until we finally see Jean-Claude. Uh, Jean-Claude finally comes back in the film. We find out that uh, the character of Luke Devereaux, 
he's been what he's been in Switzerland working with this uh this doctor her name is Sandra Fleming um and her goal has been uh she's trying to get him uh reacclimated to the world around him though i mean because he is this frankenstein monster he still has these fits of rage and so kind of like you mentioned already when he just beats the hell out of the guy in the uh in the diner yeah it's kind of difficult to uh want to cheer him on considering <laughs> he is yeah. he is still such a monster right yeah and it was weird like i just didn't remember I don't know. There's it just seemed like a disconnect from the Luke Devereaux. So obviously we having to discard um what was the 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 ridiculous sequel that had nothing to do with anything. But um it just didn't it's like I didn't remember that character to be or the the universal soldiers in general to be like so hell bent on killing and violence. You know, they seem to be made to follow orders and to be docile. And I think the most interesting thing about that film was like that the Dolph character and jc like were coming out of it you know and their humanity was poking through and dolph's was a bit more like deranged but so at the end of that movie like luke was much more just like a you know almost like the the guy he would have been before he went to vietnam you know he wasn't uh you know they had to keep the body temperature regulated but they didn't have to like keep him from being in a murderous rage all the time so it just that part was a little confusing to me and i guess a new convention that they were introducing you know that basically left unchecked these guys are just like programmed to kill everything in their sight and i I wondered if i was even missing something like am i is that what it seemed like to you or am i like kind of missing a key component of what sets them off no i don't think you're missing anything i think it's just i I'm, i'm assuming when they were brought back uh brought back to life through the universal soldier program you know what I mean? Like giving them orders and directions to follow, you know, you know, to eliminate any kind of threat that they deem or, or assume to be suspicious, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I does seem like maybe they were just kind of going under a different, they're, they're kind of ch- ch- changing the rules a bit or changing kind of the, I don't know. It was, there was just some inconsistency for me in like trying to, I couldn't f- track always like, I don't know. It, like, for instance, like w- soon when they take Luke to like get him back in the program, like they break in and they have to take him by force and all this. But like, he trusts that doctor. <laughs> you know why? Yeah. Why didn't they just like have the doctor say like, "We're going here now, <laughs> doing this"? I, I don't know. And then like, I don't know. I'm jumping ahead. I, there were just some things I didn't quite, I couldn't quite track in terms of like the emotional through lines and what like characters wanted <laughs> i don't know but then they're reanimated corpses which i i think if anything that there's definitely been a real reversion to that and the kind of horror of that rather than any kind of progress that was made you know however many decades prior where at the end of which like scott's thrown out on the lawn in pieces and uh, and luke's reunited with his parents so I just accept that, you know, moving forward that like Lucas, they're trying to keep him kind of with all this medication and all this kind of reprogramming of sort of not, not in the same way as he was before, but like deep programming, I guess, trying to reintegrate him into society, which certainly makes more sense than the, uh, the return, right. That he would be like, so gung ho to be like a part oh. of this organization. Yeah. You know, the, the sequel, I mean, like I said, that was the biggest insult to me with, uh, with the sequel because I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous in 
in The Return, not only that he would be working alongside him, but there is one line near in the first 10 minutes of the movie where uh, Devereaux was like, if you remember in the beginning, he's helping train these uh, these new soldiers or whatever. And, uh, oh, yeah, like in the swamps back. and stuff. <laughs> yeah, in the swamps. And then he brings them back to the compound, and the lead doctor who's in charge of the whole program, he looks at Devereaux and he says, well, Devereaux, if you want, we can uh, suit you back up and get you in there. And, and Devereaux, if you remember, Jean-Claude, he has this big, big goofy grin on his yeah. face, and he goes, no, 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 been there, done that. It's like, yeah. what? Like, why would you? <laughs> How is that funny? <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, to you of all people. Yeah, that's <laughs> funny. Oh, man. So like you, I mean, I, I do, I will admit, I do like how they are because <laughs> this is, this is kind of ridiculous to admit, but I remember after I saw uh, the return in theaters, I actually did write out like a, um, like a two page draft treatment for what I would like to have seen a sequel or what, what, what? what I think a great That's sequel would have awesome. been. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you still and, have that? I don't, but I will. I will oh, tell it to you right it now. Breaks my it's, heart. Yes, please do. I, I so my my treatment or my idea actually it didn't have Dolph Lundgren in it because in my mind I remember thinking at the time well at the end of uh, of Universal Soldier Dolph was uh, grinded to bits he was chopped up into into little pieces like how are we going to bring him back and so I remember my idea was and I'm not making this up actually but my idea was going to have Devereaux running his parents' farm because his parents have uh, deceased. So he's trying to live a peaceful life running his parents' farm, but he is blackmailed and strong-armed by the government in helping them track down some rogue Unisols who have uh, who have gone rogue and who are who are on the run. And so they need Devereaux, with him being a former Unisol himself, to uh, to track them down and stop them. And it's it's really just kind of wild. I remember when I saw Regeneration for the first time, I was thinking to myself, okay. They didn't have Van Damme running the farm, but they're essentially using the idea that I had. So that's yeah. kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. I like your approach better, though. It would have been interesting to see yeah, him back on the uh, on the farm. I, I always get a little confused because I've seen the movie, obviously, so many times. But I have the alternative ending that's on you know the, the DVD and probably if there's a Blu-ray or whatever. Oh, it's disturbing should... as hell. But I can't remember it as well and so i kind of get confused with like how it ends i think the theatrical cut just ends with he and veronica hugging right and you get the sense that his parents are still alive his still alive yeah yeah, yeah. okay okay the but they die in the other well no no my my, my idea was going to be in in between films off screen his parents passed away oh yeah but that's like yeah that's sort of peaceful and all yeah. that but I, it, does, in the alternative ending to the theatrical one did they get killed i can't remember no no the the alternative ending is disturbing as hell it turns out that his dad was i don't even know if it's his real dad or not but anyway um rance howard who is playing his dad and ends up working with uh, dr mcgregor and they can't have any remaining universal soldiers and so they just they just i mean they blast poor luke Devereux to the ground i mean it it's oh, almost no! similar <laughs> Yeah, it is. I'm not kidding you, dude. It is very disturbing. It's almost similar to, uh, I'm assuming you've seen Robocop, the original Robocop. Yeah, but only in the last few years. So it's just a little fresh for me. Yeah, well, it's, it, the, the alternate ending is very similar to when, uh, the bad guys annihilate Murphy and just, you oh, know, destroy man. him. It's, it's pretty. So they, they made a good call in, uh, <laughs> yeah, not doing Jesus. that ending. Thank God. 
Well, I love the sound um, of, of your uh, of the of the movie you came up with. I, I would have been a little more on board for that, I think. And the the I'm sure he would have been a bit more like that human, um, that human side. But at the same yeah. time, even though again, so I, I, it's a lot to do with what I guess I would just like to see these actors play. But I think what ended up happening to some extent, they seem to have had input in not wanting to retread that ground as actors, not wanting to go through that, like, okay, we're just going to awaken to repeat all this over and over again. So I know that that was something that from the behind the scenes stuff that I consumed that, the, that there was at least what their, some of their input was, but that I just would have liked a little bit more continuity in Luke's character with like him having a bit more humanity, especially with what he was going through to kind of try to try to be in that place. But um, anyway, sorry, I get long walk for short drinks. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so well, going back to the film, going back to the film, what, uh, what the army decides to do now that they have Devereaux in their, in their clutches, I guess you could say is they spend the necessary time in getting uh, Luke Devereaux retrained and ready for battle. So they have him in shooting target practice. They have him running on a treadmill and they are just pumping him full with all sorts of drugs and liquids and steroids and whatever to get him back into fighting condition. And the kind of nerd I am like Van Damme nerd. I was just like, that's not Van Damme. (laughs) It's like, that's not how he kicks. (laughs) And then they kept showing. I was like, well, he must have just been gone, you know. Oh no! No, he they they filmed those the the, the scenes of him uh, doing the target practice and uh, doing the kicks and the running on the treadmill. Those are all stunt doubles. Those were all filmed, I imagine, when Van Dam was. Uh, th- those were not his contractually obligated fifteen days on set. Yeah, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, you get the story wise, you get the you get the point. Uh. Well, and I will say that this is this is one of my slight problems with the film. Is because, I mean, we've kind of alluded to it already a bit, but because Jean-Claude it was on hand so little in the film, he's not in the film that much. And so, as a result, there's not really a singular protagonist. I mean, you could say, you could say it's Luke, but, I mean, he's absent quite a bit. And I guess you could also say it's uh, Mike Pyle's character, that soldier. But, I mean, that character is, he's just so static. Um, that he doesn't do much other than being just a traditional soldier. So you're watching this film that has these amazing action sequences and these brutal fight scenes, but you're really not following a singular lead protagonist, which is problematic, yeah. I think. Yeah, I, I think that is the the thing that I couldn't necessarily put my finger on, that like I keep saying, I don't care. That That's what I was missing. I was missing somebody to hang it all on, like emotionally, that you go through the whole thing with. And I think even like if they, I'm not saying this is the way to have gone that would have been perhaps more effective, but like even if they establish a bond with the kids up front that, that are kidnapped, because they were, uh, they were, when they came back to them at the time, I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's a thing. <laughs> like there's kidnapped kids involved here that they're trying to rescue. But like, yeah, there was just no one you stayed with long enough to develop a, a connection to as an audience member. And so I, I think that, that, that that's the the you've pinpointed what it is that was missing for me with this, which was some sort of central figure to kind of connect with on a emotional level. Well, I will say, I will say, wow, does does John Hyams do it right? I mean, because again, you're a film director and your two leads 
are <laughs> you have you have so many days to shoot a film and your two leads are only on set for so many days okay well what do you do how do you do it i mean how, how do you include them in the film and so i feel like he does it right i mean he is giving the fans i think what they want i mean where a lot of these films especially a lot of the ones made nowadays when the stars are only on set for i mean if you look at any of the films bruce willis has done within the past five years i mean he's only on set for maybe four days and what they do is they pretty much just film him talking on the phone or sitting behind a desk giving orders man whatever it may be i mean it's it's really insulting and so i think what hyams does is he says okay look i only have these guys on set for so much time well what i'm going to do is i'm going to put them to work in the action sequences Okay, yeah. I'm going to. And so, and I think that was a wise move on his behalf. Okay, Van Damme only has so many days. Dolph Lundgren only has so many days. Well, what is he going to do? Well, he's going to save them all for the third act of the film, okay, and have them involved in those fight scenes. And while there is some stunt doubling, which is uh, pretty apparent in some of those fights, it's not too bad. I mean, and I think that was a really wise move on his behalf was to, you know, okay, I got these guys for a limited amount of time. Well, you know what? Fans want to see them fight. Fans want to see them, you know, in action, kicking each other's ass, kicking other people's ass, whatever it may be. <laughs> well, then let's um, let, let's do it right and let's let's put them to work in something that I think fans want to see. Right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think he did make a smart choice there, and uh, even in that scene that upset me so much, you know, years ago. God, that was tw- ten years ago. Um, <laughs> and and then again you know, when he attacks that guy, Van Damme attacks the guy in the diner, you do still get a couple cool Van Damme kicks before you like grunt and ground and pound him. Like I was happy to see, to see the, uh, you know, even that, I think, you know, that's a kind of a disturbing thing, but you're going to see Van Damme so little, you might as well see him do a little bit of his, like his martial arts. And they're not, uh, I, I did the math and hopefully I did this right. But Dolph, Lundgren would have been 52 years old making this and Van Damme 49. So, I mean, they're both still out there kind of doing it. I mean, Dolph, it sounds like more than Van Damme, but uh, they're, they're getting dirty and like, you know, mixing it up on this uh, for their age. Like it's pretty impressive. And uh, yeah, I think, I think Himes makes great use of everything that he does have. I think it's just too much too much having to make that compromise you know too much like bending a script to to fit around a location and you know i think they had to do every all these things to kind of make do with what their strongest elements were and the thing that got left out was like something to tie it all together which you know i guess maybe the uh arlowski is that central character that that is throughout it's just that he's not someone that you can like identify with it's more like a I don't know, like a Jason or Freddy or something, I guess, without the humor. Yeah. Now, what did you think of the, uh, I mean, cause obviously, I mean, you're, you're a filmmaker yourself. I mean, I'm curious. The sequence where, uh, where Van Damme, uh, so the De- Van Damme's Devereaux character, where he goes into the, uh, uh, he starts charging the reactor and just blowing away all those terrorists. I mean, that is a really, uh, a really slick looking action sequence. I mean, it's very reminiscent of a war movie. I love how the camera is just following Jean-Claude as he's laying waste to everyone. I mean, the scene almost feels like a single tracking shot. I mean, you can, you can kind of pick out some of the, some of the edits 
But I mean, the the way they shot that is really well done. I'm curious. I mean, being a fan of Van Damme, you had to really dig that scene, right? Yeah. I, well, yes and no. Like I, once I, Van Damme was like doing anything like action wise, I was much more engaged. But there's, I think this is another thing that perhaps why this movie didn't click for me is because certain things I I need. I, I know I keep saying it, but I need that like human component, or I I think I just check out. Like I car crash like car chases and movies and stuff like that i find that i just oh no i haven't been paying attention for a while and sometimes it's like really amazing things being accomplished and sometimes they're really great and integral to the story but something about car chases my brain shuts down and another thing that does that to me is automatic gunfire (laughs) type stuff Mm. like and so i I had this note it's kind of weird but i was like i'm trying to think of anything i find as uninteresting as automatic gunfire so that was like I actually made more note of that. This is so, st- I'm, I'm John Himes would just heartbreak. <laughs> he would like probably physically remove me from the room saying these things. But like, I was oddly more distracted by like, oh, I'm not interested on medic gunfire. <laughs> then I was like, holy shit, look how well done this is. <laughs> it's so kind of backward that way. And, and I think the other thing too is a lot of it calls to mind kind of first person shooter type stuff, uh, video games, which has never been something that I've locked into. And so it's weird. It's like, I could tell, I could tell these things were being really skillfully executed. And obviously when you keep the camera wide and stuff and they would do all, it's like, it's a must be a stunt person's dream to watch this movie, like to see the cool shit that they do. And they, uh, they were talking about in the commentary, like they would do these little sleight of hand things where, you know, maybe the lead actor would be, say somebody falls from a building and then gets up. So like the lead actor would be laying there on the ground the stunt person would fall all in one big wide shot and you'd see the stunt man fall and crash. And then the lead actor gets up and it like, looks like the lead actor was the one to do it. There's no CG involved, but it's like really kind of skillful old school staging, you know, to make it all happen. And so I would kind of go back and forth between being like, ah, (laughs) annoyed that I didn't care more about what was unfolding. And then I'd be like, well, this is impressive. I don't know. It was just a weird kind of cycle. But so I was really glad that there was so much actual like fighting between Van Damme and, and, and others and, and Dolph. And honestly, Dolph's scene where he was talking a lot, uh, where he kind of kind of came to life and consciousness consciousness and was saying, you know, do you contemplate the complexity of human human life? Like that was far and away my favorite few minutes of the movie, um, more so than any of the action, even like I was. I was just like glued to that when that happened. Cause that started to think like, and then that's when they were starting to make the connections to not just the first movie, but like their first death, if you will, like in, uh, in Vietnam, you know, with the two hostages that Andrew Scott had with these two hostages. And it was all like, yeah, kind of started starting to make a little sense, but like not really for them. Anyway, that was when I really locked in. Um, I just was not so into like the Luke Devereaux as the Terminator type thing. Cause I was like, what is the, his motivation here? Like, why is he doing this? I don't know. It was weird for me. Well, it's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned the automatic gunfire. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but did you notice how they downgrade Luke's weapons as he's, you know, storming this entire reactor? They pretty much go from big to small and they, and I remember oh. listening to the commentary on uh on this one as well as on day of reckoning and this is something that uh was a conscious decision on john hyam's part as well because if you notice luke's weapons as he's you know as he's just 
laying waste to everybody. Um, he starts out with a machine gun, runs out of that. He drops that. He pulls out an automatic pistol. He uh, he wastes a yeah. few with that, drops that. Then he goes to a knife, and he just you know <laughs> destroys people, um, the the bad guys with a knife as well. I thought that was kind of a cool note, but look, you mentioned it already, so let's just let's just go to the the giant elephant that is in the room, the <laughs> best the best sequence in the film as well. I mean, Andrew Scott, okay, Dolph Lundgren. It takes a while for him to make his appearance in the film, but he finally does. Um, I, I like you. I like the fact that they acknowledge, okay, Dolph is a clone this time, so the clone is not going to act exactly the same as the Andrew Scott that we all know and uh, and loved in the first Universal Soldier would. So I like how, again, we have Hyams playing up that Frankenstein, uh, the Frankenstein element of the story. But yeah, you have this um, a reanimated piece of flesh who's questioning his existence. He's questioning everything around him. And he doesn't even really know who he is or what is going on. However, what I loved about it, when we see Devereaux and Andrew Scott reunite, you already mentioned, I love this because it nods to the original in such a unique way. It's almost like it, I mean, it's really cool how they do this. It's almost like it picks up right after the initial fight between Devereaux and Andrew Scott in, in Vietnam. Because like you said, Andrew Scott in Vietnam, he had two innocent civilians cornered. He had Van Damme came in to, to rescue them. Here, it's the exact same thing. You have Andrew Scott has these two innocent civilians cornered. Devereaux comes in. I mean, and it's picking up right where they left off. Um, only this time, not in Vietnam, obviously, but it's in uh, Chernobyl. I thought that was, that was pretty cool. Keep asking them questions. Just trying to get some and answer. Nothing. Just a simple yes or no. It's ridiculous. I knew it's something to tell you. It was it's right there. On the tip of my tongue. Shit. And I'm sure I'll remember it in a minute. Just just wait right there. Something so familiar. Can't explain it. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You understand? You don't have to answer. We're good like that, right? We've been over this all before. I'm just gonna do something here. Yeah, I, I loved that. And I actually really appreciate that they didn't, and I'm sure there's a rights-based thing that they probably couldn't just insert flashbacks or whatever. But it's like you really you had to you you could see this movie without having seen that movie. I'm I'm I don't know how much that happened, because I have to imagine anyone watching Universal Soldier Regeneration is likely to have been a fan well not necessarily maybe the maybe the mma fans come into it to see you know arlovsky you know like that kind of thing that they may have not seen it 
So I think it, it probably plays a little bit different if you don't actually know that history of like, this is when these guys like died in Vietnam. But um, I like the subtlety of it. I like the fact that it wasn't overplayed or I don't know. I, I, I was just, I thought that that scene was like really well done and really effective. And actually even from the moment before like uh, Andrew Scott gets out of that, like, you know, chilled sarcophagus when they're just like showing those partial close-ups of his face I was just like, ooh, this is getting good. And it, and it just kept getting, you know, better for like those last like 10 minutes or dynamite. Well, there is lots and lots of destruction in this fight. I mean, these two guys are throwing each other through various walls of concrete and rubble. Um, we get some really cool martial arts and stunt work here. Again, I mean, if you want to compare this, if you want to compare the Devereaux Scott fight, we'll say in this film compared to their initial fight, I mean, this is different from the first Universal Soldier movie because the fights here compared to the first one, I mean, the fights in the first one were, were brutal as well. I mean, my God, the, the scene in the first one where, where Lundgren just keeps smashing poor Van Damme's head against the car. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? Feel um, that, yeah. But, but here, I mean, here it is different. And I mean, I, I think we keep using the word cold and oppressive. And I mean, here, I mean, these, th this fight is, I mean, it is, it is messy as, as I, I imagine it would be, but um, man, they just get after it. And can we say, I mean, again, this is, I really would love to talk to the writer of this film to, to kind of feel like what his headspace was when he was going here, but I got to imagine, okay, they're thinking Dolph had an amazing death in the first universal soldier movie. How can we top that for the sequel? Oh, yeah. And they do. I mean, and it is, I mean, and if you thought the first, his death in the first one was pretty dark and gruesome and violent, holy Lord, here it is completely on another level. Yeah, yeah. Oh, before, before we unveil that, because that is such a cool moment. The, I, I remember, so watching them fight, I was really pleased, but I, I did have that thing of like, why are they just like constantly throwing through, through, you know, room to room to room to room? I was annoyed by that as I, you know, mentioned being annoyed about various things in this, but then I remember like that actually was a big part of the, the first movie too. Like this kind of just like, there was a ton of just like throwing people around at that in the barn at the end and running through the walls. And, you know, I think they're often just trying to show the, how powerful, you know, these, these super soldiers, um, are and then yeah so i don't know if you've ever seen frankenstein meets the wolfman but it might be i don't know i encourage the listeners or whatever to look it up on youtube like i'm sure the end fight it's it's <laughs> so kind of similar like van damme little van damme and uh and big hulking uh and really reminded me of those two characters but the one thing i really missed and and this was uh i don't know how they didn't do their own adr van damme and Lundgren which I know because they both have such distinct kind of vocalizations for their fights. You know, I mean, if you grow up, like we seem to have watching these movies over and over again, like hearing their grunts and exertions are like a big part of the soundtrack, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I really wanted to hear that kind of back and forth of just like Dolph's like, and Van Damme's, Wah! you know, it's like, it's yeah. so distinctive. Like I knew instantly I was like, ah, oh, they, they're not, it's not them. It's just like random dudes going. <laughs> I'm not doing, well, it. I'm not doing it justice, but <laughs> no. Well, I mean, I, I agree with him. I mean, Van Damme, he doesn't even really talk in this movie like at all. 
I no. mean, and I think that kind of goes along with the whole idea. I mean, because I chart, I, in my opinion, I would chart this particular film as kind of being the beginning of, of Jean-Claude's retirement. Because if you look at all the films that he's done since this particular one, I mean, he's taken on a lot of supporting roles. And when he is there, I mean, he's there, but he plays just this strong, silent type. You know what I mean? Who just yeah, seems sad. Kind of, he's always who sad. Seems sad. Well, like, and he really only started playing sad from this point on. And I don't know. I mean, I think there could be a variety of reasons, but I just don't think, I think the quality of the productions is not what he was used to back in the nineties, but I just don't think he wants to, to give it his all. But I was, I was with you. I would have loved, I mean, I think what would have made this fight even better is if Dolph said, I mean, obviously, okay, we don't want them to repeat everything from the first one beat for beat, but I think, I think you needed Dolph's character to say, that's the spirit soldier. Yes, I would have loved that. Or just, oh, God, that exact line. Yeah, I would have lost my shit if that happened. That's a great call. I mean, he he was getting on such a roll there when he was like, Starting to talk back to that to that um I don't know if that guy was a doctor, but he was kind of like the the evil scientist, you know, manipulating him. That when when he Scott's kind of the first guy that he like turns on and kills when he kind of comes back. I can't remember the character's name. Is this little the little smarmy guy that was uh, the heading up the like the next generation Unisols? Oh, Doctor Colin. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, who obviously you're supposed to hate as an audience member, but like as he's questioning him more and more, and then Doctor Colin is like, you know, sit, don't talk to me this way, you know, all this. Um, I loved how that kind of escalated as he was like asking him all these kind, like it's a little like that Blade Runner thing where they're trying to sort out if people are replicants if they can sort through these logic problems and stuff, and so that he kept repeating that, and you're like, you often contemplate the complexity of human life and he's like but he kind of keeps going that pushing that so i would have liked to have seen some of that attitude and that kind of uh rhetoric like leveled at devro you know like culminating perhaps in that uh, that's a spirit soldier would have been oh god what a missed opportunity yeah he does i will tell you he does use that line in day of reckoning oh if it's any consolation I saw. I tried to look away in the Scott Adkins thing where they talked about that movie. I, I really appreciated that about that YouTube series where he's like, they, they'll actually like watch clips from the films and stuff. But so I turned my head when they started talking about that movie because I haven't seen any of that movie yet. But it seemed like what was going on there with Andrew Scott was next level bonkers to where I'm just like, this oh, yeah. movie, I got to see it. Well, I, I mean, going back to this fight, I mean, so you have Devereaux and Scott. Um, they are just, uh, <laughs> throwing haymakers at each other, kicks, everything. Um, they fall out of the top floor of this building, land in the snow, where Luke Devereaux then takes a lead pipe and shoves it into the head of, uh, Andrew <laughs> Scott. And what's really cool about this scene is just when Dolph's character finally remembers his older self and who he is, what does Luke do? But he grabs a shotgun and blows his brains out (laughs) like it is my goodness i mean it is just absolutely brutal and i mean it's funny that you mentioned how jean-claude just has been playing sad but in this film i mean he's he's playing sad he's playing tired and i think a lot of that tiredness is earned because what they have his poor character do is he gets in this one just knockdown battle and i mean can we just say he takes some heavy falls 
and hits yeah. in this one. But it, I mean, the film doesn't really miss a beat because he goes right from fighting Andrew Scott to fighting the next gen soldier. Uh, so this is the final fight with, uh, Andre Arlovsky. And man, this fight as well is, I mean, it's, it's, I would say, gosh, I don't want to say it's better than the, than the, his fight, his previous fight with Andrew Scott. I mean, but I mean, both fights are so well done. And I mean, they are just, they are just going at it. Yeah, and I think the stature of them is probably more similar. I don't know exactly the height um, of those two guys, of Orlowski and Van Dam, but um, yeah, I remember as a kid, like watching him fight Dolph at the end. Like, I, I, you know, I wanted him to win, of course, and believed he could, and would hate if people were like, "That's not how it would go down." But like watching him fight Dolph in this movie, I was like, "There's no way, <laughs> like, he could beat Dolph Lundgren." <laughs> like, he just like. Like like David fighting Goliath without the sling or something. It was just like there's no way. But so it was it was cool that 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 it ended the way that it did with you know having having some assistance and the extra cool thing of like shoving the shotgun in the pipe that's already in his head. And, but by the time he's now fighting Ar- Arlovsky, like that seemed like a kind of a you know they maybe they'd be in the same weight class or something to where they were on more of a level level playing field to just kind of duke it out. Uh, you know it's funny. Cool it's funny you mentioned the the grunting and the fighting. You know, I, I wrote this note down as well that that I think is interesting. It's funny. I think there is more grunting and fighting in this film than there is actual dialogue. And <laughs> I, I think I think if you really wanted, I mean, I, I think I, I think I may like to try it someday. But if you wanted, this can almost be a silent film. I mean, you can mute the movie and still understand what's going on and enjoy it. On maybe not enjoy, excuse me, but I mean, you could, um, it would still be coherent on that level as well if you wanted to do that. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. I, I I actually have not kept up with um, action films almost at all, <laughs> you know, in the last say uh, 15, 20 years, much, but so I, I'm not like, there's not, I'm not, I don't have a, like a real fluency in them, but I do, and I haven't even seen all of Van Damme's uh, films since then. I've seen, I would say probably half or more. I'll still pick them up, you know, and uh, like, like I'll watch this someday. Um, but the ones I've seen recently, he had a couple, maybe two or three come out in one year, like in 2018. And I was noticing this thing where there is very little dialogue in that. And it's like almost the, that they'll shoot them. I think it's sort of for international markets. Cause I think that's probably the, where they make the most money is like kind of worldwide, not necessarily like focusing all their, their attention on the U S or something to where there's. So, so it's like by keeping the dialogue minimal, you don't have to, you don't have to dub, you don't have to subtitle, you know, you can just kind of keep it about the thing that I guess the people are showing up for, which is the action. Yeah. He did one about a year or two ago called we die young. Have you seen that? Yeah. That was one of them. Yeah. 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 He, where he plays a mute. He doesn't even get a single. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm starting to wonder too if he's just like, look, I don't want to. I I've done the movies and bored with movies. I don't want to talk about. I talk on the phone. I, you know, he's like, he's like taking the Bruce Willis thing one level further. He's not even talking yeah. on the phone. He's just texting <laughs> and then like yeah. holding it up for the other actor to read. Oh, that's yeah. Oh, and, that's then they, and, funny. and then and then they probably asked him. They they said, okay, well, can you do this? And he's like, mm, I'd rather. I'd rather do the role where I'm sitting most of the movie. Yeah. And they were like, Jean-Claude, you got to give us something, buddy. Can you, it's, it's either mute or you sit. And he says, Oh, 
all right, I'll be the mute. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know what's actually such a bummer, though, about where he was in his career? I was looking like in the chronology of things. This was the first film he did after the JCVD movie, like the that Time magazine was saying, like, he should be considered for an Oscar. Seriously, like that kind of thing. He was getting all this um, critical attention for that that meta film and, and performance. Um, and I'm sure he was hoping to leverage it into like being able to do different kinds of movies and, and sort of expand his persona and what people would cast him in. But unfortunately that did not happen. He did get some opportunities. Like, you know, this was going to step in one direction and by the, and before long he was playing, you know, the villain in the, in the expendables uh, sequel. But you could tell around this time, I think he was trying to like, it seemed as though he were reticent to take on the, the the kind of Eastern European churning out. You know, I can't remember the studio. Uh, was it? What's the studio that was new image? It wasn't new image. I don't know. But it was like, you know, the kind of thing where he'd do a one a year type of thing. Like, that's what a lot of the, I'm sure Seagal was doing it and maybe Lundgren as well. Like, they're just like make these movie after movie after movie that they knew they could make. It seemed to me that Van Damme was like holding out to get back into that kind of uh u.s market theatrical run it seemed to be what he really wanted whether it was like kung fu panda voiceover or he did get to do a movie where he was it was straight to video but it's called welcome to the jungle i think where he Mm -hmm. played a kind of a comedic character but it is kind of a bummer like in the behind the scenes of this he talks about like how he's you know, he got a great B12 shot from the critics from uh, from the JCVD movie. And now he's excited to, like, take that energy in this film. And, and then you see him and it's just like his lids are half closed. And he's just like basically playing this zombie character. It's a bummer. Sad damn. Jean-Claude sad damn. I was hearing on some of those other podcasts. I'd like to see him uh, break out of that somehow. Well, you know, I, I, I will say regarding his final fight with the... Uh with the next gen soldier, they do this thing that's kind of cool where they go through this routine at least three times in the fight where the next gen soldier will subdue Luke, knock him down. But then Luke gets right back up, keeps pursuing the soldier. He'll get knocked down again. I mean, it's really kind of cool how they do it, but, uh, but yeah, no, we, we have them. They finally square off at the top of the reactor where the primary bomb is located and uh, Luke stuffs it onto the back of the next-gen soldier. The two fall from the top of the reactor to the ground. So again, poor Luke has to take another fall from the top of a building, and uh, the uh, what Luke is able to get away from the bomb right before it goes off, and it just obliterates the next-gen soldier. And uh, what's really kind of uh, almost sad about the ending here is we have the terrorists and the next-gen soldier are destroyed, the Prime Minister's children are safe, as well as the nuclear reactor. And we just see Luke, he just runs off into the distance uh, onto an unknown future and existence. I mean, we, we it's funny because the film doesn't even close with, uh, with a shot of Van Damme. Instead, the film chooses to close with shots of Mike Pyle's character, who is being cloned. Because they're obviously, this is the angle that they're setting up for the sequel. But... Um, but yeah, it's interesting for for Jean Claude being our lead. It's not even going to close with him. It's 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 really it's really telling how the film's just going to end with uh, with Jean Claude's character running off in the distance, and we don't even get a close up <laughs> of his face. I know it is it's odd. I was like, 
why is he running away? I didn't even understand. And, and then I'm like, then they, then they're holding on, and I'm like, all right, I guess we're not going to see him again. And then I'm like, are they going to play sad Hulk music? Like, what? I, I was just a little confused. And, and, and again, maybe it was one of the things where Van Damme was just like, uh, how about this? I, I go, I w- walk into the distance. I go to my trailer. I never see any of you asshole again. You know, he's just like throws some sort of tantrum and walked off. It just seemed, I didn't make sense to me. I, I, it was a weird way to end. So I was with him. I, so I'm like, so I'm making that note. I'm like, what the fuck is this? And, but then, uh, when they're zipping up the, the pile, is that his name? I don't I hope not to get it wrong. Mike pile. Yeah. Mike pile. Yeah. yeah. And then when they unzip that and they see like, oh, he's going to be a, you know, that he's, they're going to make him, the, uh, you know, a next gen soldier. And then when they pan over, I was, I was truly shocked by that. I was just, was kind of, I guess, checked out or whatever. I was like, oh, cool. And so it actually ended for me on this, like, uh, that I just had like an exclamation point. Like, that was a cool ending. I was very satisfied by that as like a button for the whole thing. I thought that was really cool. Well, okay. So here we are. Here we are, David. Moment of truth. I think it's, I think it's fair to say, I think I enjoyed this film more than you did. However, all of your criticisms and your critiques, I think are extremely sound. And I think they make, uh, they make a lot of sense, but you know, I, I like to do, I like to do multiple recommends. So in your opinion, being the fan of, uh, well, not just Jean-Claude Van Damme, but of action cinema in general, I like to do two recommends. So in your opinion, does Universal Soldier Regeneration get a recommend from you? Not just as a, uh, We'll say, well, yeah, not just as a Van Damme film, not just as a Dolph Lundgren film, but as a film in general, what do you have to say? Ooh, um, as just a film in general outside of the my fondness for those guys or people following those guys, just kind of real objective action well, film yeah, type let, thing? Let, let's do both. Yeah, so let's let's do one. Give us one recommend. You could bleed these two together if you would like, but one recommendation as a uh, as an action film and then one as a uh, as a fan of Van Damme for your appreciation of Van Damme. The 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 guy who has the binder. What was right, the binder, yeah. I think the binder recommendation, the Van Damme recommendation, um I don't I think it would have to be like a real completist thing. Like don't look forward to it too much. It <laughs> would be my sense. If if your connection to him is like through like that first decade of his career, which is for me, you know, the sweet spot. In fact, in some ways the earlier the better. And so it doesn't have any of that kind of uh, the charm, uh, the humanity, the sort of uh, the even even there's not a lot of emotion in in the fighting and stuff. And so I think if you're just I, I would watch it as a completist only. That would be what I would say for Van Damme. But as a if you're a fan of like action movies in general, I think it's probably more rewarding if you if you're just kind of if you're like. Oh, do we want to watch a comedy or a drama or whatever? And you're like, and your your choice is always action movie. Then I think you'll probably find a lot to love here because it's like it's very well it's very well done. You know, with with what they had, they really make the most of it. And I think show John Hyams to be a very talented uh, action director. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, you know, in in my opinion, I think uh, I think in this film in particular. This is what fans of, uh, even if you're a fan of, of Van Damme from his earlier stuff, you know, the, the Bloodstort, uh, to Time Cop era, I think this is, this is pretty much what fans of both Jean-Claude and Dolph Lundgren would want. I mean, while they may not be in this film very much, especially compared to the original Universal Soldier film, I think the fight scenes alone more than make up for their absences. 
And while I may not enjoy it as much as the original, I will say I think this is easily one of the very best direct-to-video action films ever made. Um, it's an excellent, fitting sequel to the original. I think that effectively makes use of its budget and setting, while also taking the franchise into a clever new direction. I, I will say major, major props go to John uh, to John Hyams for his amazing work in taking a 20-plus-year-old franchise and regenerating it. <laughs> get the uh, pun there. Nice, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, pumping some new blood into uh, into this franchise for a new generation. Its overall storyline may be a little simplistic, sure, but I think that's okay because this doesn't try to be anything it's not. I, I would say Universal Soldier Regeneration. It's the sequel that I don't think anyone knew they wanted, but in my opinion... I think it does deliver, especially on an on an action front. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm, uh, I'm glad. You know, I'm grateful for the opportunity to kind of come on and talk about uh, this film, Van Damme, in general, and just kind of geek out with a with a fellow fan of this type of stuff. But I definitely like. I don't know that I would have come back to this movie after my first experience of like buying it and putting it on a shelf after the first ten minutes, and. Um, yeah, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to kind of talk it through and think about it and, and appreciate for all the great things in it. You know, I think uh, I know I haven't been very effusive in my praise, but <laughs> I think I guess what I'm saying is this process of like looking into it more to talk about it with you and then actually the time talking about it with you has really deepened my uh, enjoyment of it. So I thank you. Well, and before I let you go, uh, first of all, I will say thank you so, so much for uh, for coming in and and, and, and sit down with me and talking about it. But, you know, before I let you go, uh, we talked about your podcast, Long Walk for a Short Drink. But is there anything else that you're working on or anything else that you want to give a plug or shout out to? I know that you have a website. You do uh, you you've made your own films and you do your own music. Uh, what else are you working on that uh, fans can uh, check out? Oh, man, I'm working on a lot of things. I think the most appropriate thing, I mean, like if you if you're if you listen to this and are not just sort of irked by me <laughs> if you be like oh, i can hear that guy talk more about his deep abiding love for jean-claude van damme the, the long walk short drink podcast would be the place to go as i ramble on about him and many other um things of the sort yeah so music wise uh, uh i i had uh, like a solo singer songwriter kind of vibe and sometimes like soft acoustic sometimes like more of a rock band type scenario so something that kind of came out of the blue that is uh, exciting for me, I mentioned as a weird aside early in the conversation that I remade the Crow comic as a home video <laughs> when I was a teenager. That's a long story, um, and you can read about it if you're, if you're curious and see a preview for it uh, on my website if you go to davidalman.net slash the crow, uh, and it's U-L-L-M-A-N dot net. There's a company, a VHS, a nostalgia company called Lunch Meat VHS that is going to put out a very limited edition VHS edition of a documentary about the making of that movie, uh, which is called Inertia, Remaking the Crow. And it's myself and my my buddy, Matt, that we spent like four years from age 14 to 18 kind of doing our best to sh shoot this uh, very serious and adult graphic novel as teenagers growing into adults and our trials and tribulations as we <laughs> went through all that. And so there's a... Uh, yeah, so that that's going to be available from Lunch Meat VHS. So lunchmeatvhs.com. Those t tend to sell out pretty quickly as they have a pretty dedicated fan base, but um that that was a project that consumed a lot of my youth and the last 6 months I went through and kind of remastered uh from the original source tapes and that's been a really fun fun way to spend this very um messed up time that we've all been kind of trying to get through. 
So um, that's why. Yeah. And then I've actually then been working on some other sort of similar documentaries about other periods of my life. But uh, but that one, I think if you're a fan of the of the crow, then it would be a worthwhile thing just from a kind of a pop culture standpoint. So but but I guess really I try to the David Allman.net is just kind of a catch all for all the things, podcasts and filmmaking and uh, and uh, and music that I make. Explore it all there. I try to keep things as free as possible too. So if there's not like a, a cost of, unless you're going to buy like a vinyl album or something, most of it's just like free download. So, but I think, yeah, thanks cool. for giving me a chance to kind of run through all that. It's a, uh, it's nice to have a, I listen to a lot of podcasts and at the end they're always like, what do you want to plug? And so <laughs> feels weird to yeah. get that opportunity. So thanks. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I know you're a huge fan of uh, Brandon Lee. You and I were talking about that as well. So I'm just throwing this out there. Okay, you can either catch it or you can throw it back. But, um, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, you're a fan of Brandon Lee. I'm a fan of Dolph. If you're looking at remaking a uh, a showdown in Little Tokyo film, I might be willing to uh, to play Dolph and you can play the Brandon Lee. And we could uh, we could do yeah, this, man. you know, so let's, let's look at this. <laughs> I love that movie so much. That was that was what I think I reached out to you after I listened to that podcast where you talked about Showdown Little Tokyo. I can't remember. I think you had two guests, and I really yeah, learned yeah. a lot about somebody really knew about like the origins of the script and the development. I was just like, this guy's doing important work. I got to reach out. <laughs> so, so I'm glad I I'm glad I did. I'm glad we kind of got to this place, and I will I'll keep you posted as a, as a is pre-production on showdown little tokyo reboot <laughs> sweet sweet <laughs> well hey uh david this i had a ton of fun this is really cool thank you so much for uh for coming on and uh we'll uh we'll be we'll be in contact again i'd love to have you back on so if you're ready and if you're willing uh this uh this was a ton of fun and we'll do a uh do a part two if uh if you're game so absolutely thank you sean this has been a real pleasure all right all right well uh to everyone out there who is listening Please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews, and we'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast. Hello, listeners. Sean here again. Uh, I wanted to close out this episode with a song, and seeing as how I pretty much dropped the ball on the Universal Soldier episode a couple years ago, and I didn't include Ice-T's song, Body Count in the House. I thought it would be fitting to include it here. Uh, for those of us who need a refresher, Body Count in the House played in the closing credits of the first Universal Soldier film. In fact, the music video for the song actually included scenes from the film as well. Uh, granted, while it's from the original Universal Soldier film and not this one, Universal Soldier Regeneration also had an exceptionally large body count, perhaps even more than its predecessor. So, for your listening pleasure, is Body Count in the House by Ice-T. Thank you, and I'll see you next time. Body Count, 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 Body Count. Body count, body count, body count, body count.